Welcome to my den and to this legendary episode of Native Digital, Native Analog. Today, we ask what seemingly at face value is a pretty straightforward question. However, this question has sparked division and controversy in our country for years, if not decades. And the question is, what is the purpose of school? I've invited one of the foremost thought leaders on this topic to the show. His name is Ted Dintersmith. And in today's episode, which is the first of a two-part series, Ted and I will discuss and lay out for you what could school be. So in today's episode, we'll discuss what the education system is right now, And in part two of this episode, in preparation for the beginning of the school year, we'll talk about what school could be. Let me introduce you to Ted because his story is absolutely fascinating. And if you have not heard his name or seen the articles in the Washington Post or Forbes about him, just go Google him. Ted was America's top performing venture capitalist of 1995 and 96. But after he exited the venture world, he has spent literal decades and millions of dollars on helping change America's school system. He has done everything from, in 2012, he was appointed by Obama to represent the U.S. at the United Nations General Assembly focused on education and youth entrepreneurship. He has also funded and organized a Netflix documentary on education that's called Most Likely to Succeed. It's a fascinating documentary that essentially travels through time watching the lives of several high potential high schoolers seeing where they ended up. This is an incredible conversation today. I hope you'll enjoy listening as much as I did recording it. And hopefully you'll gather some nuggets from Ted's decades of experience in education. And I think what you'll find fascinating is that he ended up after decades of trying to solve the problem of what school could be from the inside, is now working on projects to approach it from the outside and change the system from a completely different direction. I highly encourage if you enjoy today's episode to check out Ted's community, What School Could Be. You could just look that up, just Google that, What School Could Be. It's a fascinating community with thousands of members from administrators to teachers who are focused on creating the future of school. And also check out Ted's book, also titled the same topic here, What School Could Be. Check it out, and let's begin changing the future of education for our kids, our grandkids, and for the the kids to come in the next few decades. Don't forget, this show is brought to you by Analog Academy. This is where we teach you to become a top 1% native digital employer. So if you're a business owner or a um, in the C-suite, a training and development executive, and you're looking to recruit the best and brightest from the Gen Z generation under age 30, be sure to check out our free masterclass on how to attract and recruit Gen Z. We hold that the second and fourth Thursdays of every single month. 
you can register at hannahgwilliams.com forward slash get that shit. And now hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that. And join me in my living room with the amazing Ted Dintersmith. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. So Ted, I have a a question to start us out that may seem pretty simplistic, but it seems like, at least from my perspective, no one can actually agree on this. And so I just wanted to ask you, what's the purpose of school? Well, that is a great question. And I agree with you that there's a widespread disagreement. There's a stated purpose of school and website after website School leader after school leader will say the purpose of school is to prepare kids for career citizenship and purposeful lives. I think that's a great statement of what the purpose of school should be. I think the reality in America is the purpose of school is to prepare kids for standardized tests, college applications, and more school. And and the difference between those two objectives is wider than the Grand Canyon. I could not agree with you more. So, okay. So you said we've got this like one objective that it seems like we're all trying to strive for good citizenship, preparing you for the world, preparing you for preparing children to be what great citizens, great employees, et cetera. But then what you said a second ago was it we're actually, it seems to be just shooting for this score of SAT, ACT scores, AP scores. Oh my gosh, you know, I went through that, what, six years ago now? <laughs> it's only been six years. So where, where does the disconnect happen? Like why, where, where do we shift from the purpose, those two purposes being so different? Well, I love the saying, what gets measured is what gets taught. And, and so you have to go right at the accountability measures. And I think that tells the tale of U.S. education, because every state has its standards of learning measures. And I don't take huge issue with them in the very early grades. I think you can use standardized tests thoughtfully and diagnostically in early years to flag issues around kids reading at roughly grade level, things like that. But we amp up the intensity and importance of these tests as kids get older, which I think actually we should be getting rid of them as kids get older. And I always say, Go look at the questions. You know, when you buy in, when you think what's really important is excelling on tests given in schools, tests designed by state you know, departments of education, tests relied on by the colleges, you know, take an AP U.S. history exam or something like that. And you start to look at the questions and the questions are largely low level fact based recall questions that reward kids for drilling incessantly and for short-term memorization capabilities, and penalize kids for thinking creatively, for trying a different answer, for questioning whether this even makes sense. And you start to 
look at this as a whole and you realize we're pushing kids to excel on things that are not only not relevant anymore. You know, it's, it's like if you can just say Siri or uh, it's going to jump in and, <laughs> and answer me, you know, but but Alexa or whatever, you, you know, you, you know, we don't need fact based recall capabilities anymore. It's not to say the content isn't important, but that's a marginal skill that's decreasing in importance. What we really need are bold, creative, out of the box thinking kids, kids that are entrepreneurial, kids that are excellent at leveraging resources. And, and when you put those characteristics together, those skills together, generally that spells problem student, right? The kid that asks all the questions, the kid that says, I don't think this really makes sense, that challenges existing procedures or thinking. The kid that, you know, you try to leverage resources on an exam in America today in any school, and you're probably thrown out for cheating. Whereas adults, that is an incredibly invaluable skill. And so if I had to net it all out, I'd say we are working so hard, so intensely and spending so much money to prepare our kids to do exactly what machine intelligence does, to reward those that are the, that are the least imperfect version of a robot or a computer, to drain out of them their curiosity, their creativity, their audacity, and to equip them with skills that don't serve them well, while we erode or neglect or ignore the very skills that could let them get ahead. And when you net that out, when you look at that as an aggregate for not just a kid here and a kid there, but for millions and millions of kids and wave after wave after wave of cohorts that come through the school system, you're setting up society for colossal failure. You bring up a really interesting point, which it kind of, it brings me back to this conversation that I had recently because, you know, we're in graduation season, right? <laughs> Your kid's graduating. My siblings are graduating high school. My third sister down, Catherine, she just graduated. And it was really interesting, Ted. I was having a conversation with multiple parents in the room at the graduation parties, you know, and I try my best during those graduation gatherings just to listen, you know, as all the kids talk about college and the parents, you know, go back and forth about the colleges their kids are getting into and, and all this jazz. And one thing I've noticed in the past couple of years, you know, me looking back post high school, now post college as well, is that there seems to be this giant gap in terms of how we define what is intelligent anymore? You know, like you, what you just described about a, a, a child who's being prepared in our society to do exactly what AI is going to do harkens back to conversations I used to have with my grandfather and I'm still having now with, with parents at these graduations about, you know, a, a, it's like a child's intelligence is measured by how much they can memorize. And I've had parents tell me, and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. I've had parents tell me, my kid tells me all the time, but mom, I could just Google this. And the mom goes, but of course they need to know that information, right? I mean, like we, we, we applaud all these people who can, who memorize the dictionary or the encyclopedia, you know, who have all of this fact driven knowledge in their head. And, and I just tend to witness that at these gatherings with parents talking about their kids, there's almost this societal expectation that intelligence 
is equated with those mechanical um, memorization, you know, go down the list, but all of those very rudimentary skills. And it terrifies me. <laughs> what, what have you seen? Does that match up with, with what you observed when you were traveling across the 50 states looking at different schools? Well, terrify may be the exact right word for this because think of how this plays out daily across America in school after school, community after community. Millions of kids get the message that they're not smart because they don't memorize well or they find it very boring or, uh, you know, the, the, the procedures don't come quickly to them. You know, you know I, I love this anecdote. If you talk to any high-priced SAT test tutor, they give you two pieces of advice. They never cover content or material. You boost somebody's SAT or ACT scores not by having them understand more, understand more deeply. The two most important pieces of advice they give them are don't think creatively. The tests are designed to be scored by a computer, so think like a computer. And if it's hard and it's going to take you a while to figure it out, skip it. I mean, what terrible life lessons, right? So that's this very narrow thread of a dimension that separates the academically gifted from everybody else. Everybody else ends up feeling crummy about themselves or limited. And, and those that are getting glorified are good at something that what's in your pocket is better at. And, and you know, I, I can't take credit for it. How, Howard Gardner had this famous, you know, book years ago called The Eight, way, Eight Types of Intelligence. There are probably way more if you really start thinking about it. But there's so many ways any given individual can be a contributing member of their family, of their community, of the nation as a whole. There are lots of ways that, that we can all make a positive difference in our world. But if most of us are being told, forget it, you're kind of an also-ran it's very destabilizing to society, particularly if a lot of the things that could let you get a great job get blocked in terms of your path forward. And so there, people turn into being resentful. And, and in some ways, I think they're well within their bounds to be resentful because I was, you know, speculatively, but so-and-so was told they were a dummy year in and year out because they couldn't shove a million things into short-term memory. You know, you look at one of the things I love to go after is the AP exams. And, and you know, now that, now that COVID's sort of largely under control, we now go back to bookstores. Go to the bookstores and look at the shelves of AP test you know, exam flashcards. And, and the thing I beg the college board to do, which they don't have any interest in doing, and the thing I beg schools to do, which schools are very reluctant to do, is to evaluate students one, two, three months after they've taken an exam and see how much they actually retained. We do all this, we put all this effort in, all this time, all this money to educating kids in a certain way, which is largely 24 to 48 hour cram sessions before the exam, maybe aided by Adderall, and then they might get a great score in the exam. Just test them two months later and see if they actually remember it. And we don't do that. When it's done anecdotally, the results are incredibly revealing, which is it's gone. You know, the, the students that, that ace these exams, two months later, they don't even remember what they were saying. I use this anecdote in, my, in one of my books, and it was in the film that I did with Greg Whiteley, about this really, I was impressed with the school, Lawrenceville Academy in Princeton, New Jersey. Now, 
even today, if, if your kid gets into Lawrenceville, it's a, it's a very selective private boarding school. If your kid gets in, you're like doing high fives because you now get to pay, I think it's $75,000 a year for high school. And what Lawrenceville did a few years ago is that they did have people that said none of it's sticking. This is ephemeral. We, we are, our kids' performance on exams is like writing an essay on a sandy beach, you know, when the wind just blows it away. And so here's what they did. For two years across lots of subjects, they set out to take kids who had done well on exams, all the kids, but anyway, kids who had taken their exams in June, retest them in September. Some of the faculty raised objections because they said, well, our final exam had some low-level stuff that most people wouldn't remember. Sort of begs the question of why, but anyway. So the people that drove this initiative said, no worries. Get rid of anything low-level you think students would forget. Let's just test them on the essential concepts we think all of your students mastered. What happened over a two-year period across lots of subjects and kids? Average grade went from a B-plus to an F. And not one student retained everything that they thought every student was retaining. And, and that's Lawrenceville, which feeds the Ivy League. You know, that's everywhere. That is everywhere. And, and so when you think about U.S. education, it's really simple. You know, I, I love this saying, there's nothing wrong with U.S. education other than what we teach and how we teach it. And, and I think that's fair to say. And I think it's really important to emphasize this is not the fault of our teachers. They are not the ones trusted to come up with the accountability measures. They are not the ones trusted to craft learning challenges that bring out the strengths of all their kids. They are micromanaged by bureaucrats and imbecilic state legislators who feel like data is more important than the future of kids and communities and shove down the throats of our schools and teachers and students these mindless accountability exams that they design and implement on the cheap, that tell us nothing about skills that matter, but give them this false sense of comfort that we're tracking things. So now we've got 20 years of useless data that tells us we're making no progress on the wrong goals. And one of the things I beg to happen is these state legislators, I say like, how would you feel taking the 11th grade accountability exam tomorrow morning with a proctor and publish your scores? Because I promise you, if more than 1% of state legislators in America could pass the 11th grade math exam, I'd be surprised. I, I bet they would invariably fail that exam because that's the story of high school math, a whole bunch of micro tidbits that are easy to test but never used later in life. And that's, that's math, but it's so much other, so much, so much more than that. There is so much gold in what you just said. And okay. So Backing up here to the bigger picture for a second, because here I am, I'm 24, and you've lived a whole lot longer than I have and seen a whole lot more generations. <laughs> you know, actually, Tub, when I first heard you on, uh, on Follow Your Different, I was like, this guy, he's, he's got to be in his 30s or 40s. Like, he's got to be, he's got to be like right there with me. And then we started talking and was like, oh my gosh, this, this is like a wealth, a fountain of experience. Anyway. <laughs> then you did a video chat. You said, oh, he's in the 30s. You got to, this guy's way past his 30s. <laughs> Like if he's in his thirties, I better I better ramp up. I, I thought I was ahead of most people my age, but I need I need to get going. Um, 
my point being, you have lived through so many more eras of just education and seen how we've shifted and our the way our school boards run and our and our the bureaucratic uh, influence on schools has existed. So, walk me back to like your high school days. What is different about what we do now, specifically within the context you just gave me of of this. Uh, the teachers being so uh, so tied to these exams and the drilling and the measurement and uh, what is different from when you were in high school to now? Well, there's there are aspects that are different and aspects that are all too similar. So I went to public high school, Northern Virginia. At the time, the community we lived in was, I'd say, lower middle income. It's it's changed. It's near Tyson's Corners, so that's whole, that area is transformed. And I'll be you know, direct in dating myself, I graduated high school in 1970. So you, you can do the math. I just turned 70 years old. So anyway, year my dad was born. Yeah. So um, you know, he was he was born in 1970. I was born in 1952. So so there we go. I love it. Um, you know, so what's what is the same? And I've been back to my high school multiple times in the last three or four years. What's the same is that the subjects that students study are essentially exactly what I studied. There are seniors graduating from James Madison High School taking the exact set of courses I took when I was a senior. And this is with a very progressive administration trying to really change things and be innovative. But they're still taking, as I did, and and this is, I'm going to use this as an example to make the point. So when I was in high school, I took AP Calculus. We only had two AP courses offered in that high school, two. And, And I took them both, an AP English and an AP Calculus course. And back then in 1970, there was some use in understanding calculus. Because in 1970, this was very early in the the era of computers. And, And subsequent to high school, I majored in physics and English. But I did as an undergraduate research papers that required me to do closed form integrals, and and which is the essence of calculus. And, and this was when there were only two ways to do it. One was analytically to come up with a solution. And I spent endless hours trying to come up with a solution to the integral I was trying to work with. So I know it had value back then. I ended up having to write by hand the code in Fortran and do it numerically. So, so this was six months, two publications, you know, led to great academic outcomes where I went to college. Today, that exact process would be done in three seconds by putting photo math over top of that integral. You know, I've spent, oh gosh, now nine years combined audiences of several hundred thousand trying to find one adult in America who does the stuff of high school calculus. Guess what? No one does it. Not one person is solving closed form integrals by hand professionally. Yet, the students today are still taking nine months of AP calculus, if they're really on the advanced path, calculus BC, to take the AP calculus exam because college admissions values it. And then when you get to college, you've got to take it to major in things like business. I had an incredible business career. No one in business is doing closed form integrals by hand. And it just, it's this remnant. It's like, it's like somewhere planted landmines and never bothered to, to, deactivate them. We've got all these barriers, all these hurdles, all these barbed wire fences, these landmines 
that can blow up career aspirations for kids that are useless in life. You know, so that's what's eerily the same. Same subjects taught generally in the same way. Now, 52 years later, when back then, you know, computers were in a, the basement of a building and required you to spend endless hours putting together a punch card deck where the only way you could get information was going to the library or an Encyclopedia Britannica or listening to a teacher and taking notes. Today, all of that has changed. Same subjects taught in the same way. Nothing wrong with American education other than what we teach and how we teach it. What's different? Oh, my gosh. And I've traded notes with some of my classmates. School was so relaxed then. You know, school wasn't 125% of healthy waking hours or 100% of healthy waking hours. It might have been half of my time. I had a lot of time to just do what I wanted to do. That was different. Second, college was not a big deal. When we took the SAT, we, there was like an, an announcement on a loudspeaker for those of you who think you might want to go to college, it's a good idea to take this thing called an SAT, bring it, you know, sign up, bring in a check for $14 or $15 or something. We would show up to take the test. We would read the instructions at the beginning. We had no idea what it was, you know, and, and then we'd take it. And no one was, do, you know, test prep hadn't been, ex, you know, invented. It was kind of a really relaxed thing, big deal. You took it. Getting into even the most selective colleges, there's like a third of the people were getting in. You know, so it wasn't stratified, high pressure, high stakes. And as a result, we had a lot of times to express and run with our creative interest. People picked their, I don't believe anybody in my high school picked an extracurricular activity because they thought it would look good to a college admissions officer. I think they picked it because they wanted to do it. And so it was you know, the education was somewhat matched to a world where information was scarce, where having facts at your fingertips did give you some advantage in the workplace and in life, where mastering low-level procedures was probably useful because it couldn't be done otherwise. Later on top of that, it was a relaxed portion of our lives and not our lives. Fast forward to today. It's all-consuming. It's defining in self-esteem and family worth and bragging rights, a million different things. And in the process of turning this into an intense high-stakes competition, we are draining from our kids their curiosity, their creativity, their purpose, their meaning. And I just say, to what end, right? I mean, are these kids really better prepared? I think they're worse prepared. Are they enjoying it? No. Are we robbing kids of their childhood? Yes, and all because these idiotic state legislators want to pound their chest because they say we're getting the data to justify the expenditures to taxpayers. That's a crappy reason to do what we're doing to kids. The big question I have to ask with all of that and hearing your experience versus what I experienced, and I was even homeschooled. That's a little bit of a different story, but, and I'll, I'll share that in a second. But when did this shift happen? from 1970 to 2022, from your research and your knowledge and, and looking through this, like, when do you think it happened and what drove that? Well, I, it's a great question. So there was a, a landmark report issued in 1983 called A Nation at Risk. And I love their conclusion, which they said, if, if I'm paraphrasing, but if, the, if an education system had been forced on our country by a foreign power, we would declare it an act of war. You know, but, but it was around when 
and in my book, What School Could Be, I, I highlight this. Right before then, maybe a year before, I think it was 1982, the New York Times issued its first article on global comparisons of test scores. And so when the United States didn't rank at the top of the list, when we weren't first in the nation, people panicked. Now, they didn't bother to, to explore below the surface. You know, we were testing all kids and China was testing a few kids. And, you know, it's like there were really big differences in the way those tests were administered. They were decent but not great tests. You know, we have way more, even then, far more level of childhood poverty than a lot of countries. There were a lot of explanatory questions that didn't say, you know, that, that the real cause what, what was what was going on in our classrooms. But it it really catalyzed effort that says we've got to we've got to double down, triple down on U.S. education. And then I think and I'm going to contrast what we did to what happened in Finland. And I think this is really telling is our decision was do exactly what we've been doing forever more intensely, more testing, more drilling. If we just push harder on that, we'll get our test scores up and we'll be competitive globally. And we spent 40 years with that as our goal, 40 years with stalled test scores, 40 years of whining about how our education isn't competitive globally, bored kids, micromanaged, disengaged teachers, useless content covered in school. I mean, a whole bunch of things you just sort of want to go crazy. Your head explodes when you say, why, why are we doing this? It's like you want to dig a hole and you're using a teaspoon to try to get through a cement sidewalk. And you think the answer is just keep pushing that teaspoon harder. And nobody steps back and says, hey, wait a minute, do we even want to go through that sidewalk? And should we be using a teaspoon? You know, like, no and no. Um, I don't want to interrupt you here, Ted, but I do I have to ask this before we skip past it. So are you essentially saying that this 1982 global comparison of test scores, that the drive for this global competition, the global comparison is potentially the key factor that led us to be so forceful in forcing our kids through standardized testing so we have enough data, quote unquote, to support America's status among other countries? Yeah, I mean, we're an uber competitive society. We never want to be number two to anyone. And when things come out that say we're 17th in math and I don't know what, you know, like you pick the year and those numbers, but they'll always show us sort of in the middle of the pack. Listen to any politician running for office. You know, it's just built into the narrative. Oh, look at U.S. kids. They're mediocre compared to global standards. You know, they're, and, and so people just buy into the fact that the numbers tell the tale, that our numbers is are- Is there even a global standard? Well, there is. There's OECD does this thing called the PISA test. Uh, it's, it's French, so I don't- I, I could look it up, but it's good. that's <laughs> what Google is good for, Program <laughs> International, something or other. And, you know, th they do that. They do it on a sampled basis every two or three years. You know, U.S. does across its, you know, states, uh, the NAEP test. So there are these assessments, but they really get at those narrow set of skills we've been talking about. And the one thing I find this always so amusing is that when they, when those, and you'll, the, whenever they come out with a new round of PISA scores globally, this will be true as well. They'll say, you know, not only is the U.S. mediocre, but the only category we do really well in is how confident our students are about how much they know. 
and it's always delivered in a snarky sort of way. You know, like not only are we bad, but we think we're good. Oh my gosh, isn't that horrible? And I always look at that and say, thank God, you know, like, like, don't we want confident kids? I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, who figures stuff out? Who takes chances? Who's willing to dive into ambiguity? I want our kids to be the most confident kids in the, in the world. And I think that's to the credit of the younger generation that they remain confident despite getting this drumbeat that says you're not very smart in school. But yeah, so that's really, we're, we're 40 years into a failed experiment. And, you know, every time, you know, I was super early, you know, from the very beginning, the first National Finance Committee with Barack Obama. You know, I bought into hope and change, hook, line and sinker. You know, he totally blew it in the education area. You know, so we took no, you know, so it was a nation at risk. It was the 1989 corporate gathering that said we need to be better in scores to get our kids prepared. Then it was George W. Bush and No Child Left Behind, aided by Teddy Kennedy, that said if we just measure more, test more, and drill more, everything will be well. Obama comes along, hope and change, brings in Arne Duncan, who then says race to the top, which really should have been called sprint to the bottom. And it's more and more weight on these test scores. And, you know, you just keep waiting for somebody to come along. And then we have Betsy DeVos, who was like a first-class idiot, and then you got Miguel Cardona, who's, you know, brings no urgency to anything. I mean, the best he can muster is, you know, we're taking that into consideration. And you realize we're in a country with zero education leadership. You know, you, you know, we watch the hearings, which I unfortunately do, when DeVos is up for confirmation or Cardona is up for confirmation or back when Arne Duncan was. Not once, and I know a lot of these senators, not one asks the question that needs to be asked. Do the accountability measures we use to assess progress in schools, to assess our teachers and assess our students, do those accountability measures tell us anything about what will prepare young adults for career citizenship and purposeful lives? And if the answer is they don't, why the hell aren't we changing them? And, and that's the question we should be asking all these guys. But, you know, I mean, like, why the hell... Do we keep doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on signs of author bias or arc sequence or, you know, a million different things that nobody uses as an adult? that are low-level procedures, pattern recognition, fact-based recall in a world where none of that matters. And, and you know, what, what's heartbreaking, right, is I, I always say to people, you want to be optimistic, hang out with some four- and five-year-olds. Are they creative? Yeah. Are they curious? Yeah. Do they think outside the box? Unbelievably. Do they learn at warp speed? Do they return what, retain what they're doing? You know, if you're worried about content, find a five-year-old who loves dinosaurs. They can spell pterodactyl. You know, we don't have to put it into people. We have to stop draining it out of them. And, and that's what we do. We spend billions and billions, trillion dollars a year educating kids out of the skills and mindsets they need and gearing them up and pushing them to be imperfect versions of what machine intelligence does perfectly instantly for free. You have just segued us perfectly into an area I, ha I have to just have to get your opinion on because, okay, so we had this conversation offline about legislature, about laws. And you said this statement to me, which I thought was really interesting. We were texting and you said, 
America would be so much better off if we had native digitals making the decisions instead of Congress. The average age, I believe, is now 68 of our Congress people. So let me let me paint a picture and I, I want to get your reaction to this, because going back to this first question I asked about what is the purpose of school? There are so many different answers. Right. And one perhaps I would add to it, looking as a native digital, as a 24 year old at the world is to me, the purpose of school seems to be one of two things. It's either to get you a great job eventually so you can provide for your family, be a good citizen, contribute to the world. Or if you go to the, I guess, higher higher arts, higher math, you're, you, if you go to school, say you go pursue a master's degree or a doctorate in, say, math, pure math is an example. You happen to be one of the very few people who use that. Then your career path will will probably be simply to envision what is possible. You know, going back to the 15, 16, 1700s, where if you went to college, that was truly what you did. So coming back to this question of what is the purpose of school? Let's say the purpose of school is to is to get have a fulfilling career. It's to find what you're passionate about to enter society as a as a purposeful contributor to, you know, the democracy that we have and, and the world that we have. If that is the case, coming back to this idea of legislature and the people who make the laws being native analogs, and then you have the native digital generation who is thinking, we're just a few years out from AI running our whole lives, then here comes this question. I'm just going to paint a scenario and you tell, you give me your reactions. So something that I've observed with law as native digital is that it seems like Every president since I've been born has made it their goal to, number one, improve the education system, whatever that means, and number two, to grow and increase the number of jobs in America. And in your book, you talk about, in What School Could Be, you talk about this society where AI is so quickly taking over, right? And where we are so, we're moving so quickly toward autonomous vehicles, toward, uh, toward having robots that can make us breakfast and, and all these things. So my question is, when I look at the laws that are being passed, why are we creating artificial jobs that are for positions like stop sign turners at construction jobs, <laughs> fast food workers who are doing the most mechanical, monotonous jobs that are not fulfilling. And it seems like every law that is passed to create jobs is doing more and more to artificially inflate the number of jobs in those low level mechanical positions, rather than push us into a society where those jobs are simply no longer necessary because artificial intelligence is doing all of those things. So I don't know how to position, position this as a question, but what is your thought on, on all, all of that in terms of how laws are being passed and created and, and how, how different their objective is from where the native digital objective, if, if I was creating the law or if my peers were passing the laws where we might be putting those resources? Yeah, it's such it's such a great set of issues and, and an amazing question there. You know, it is true. I mean, you have large, largely, almost to a hundred percent extent, 
native analogs, creating a native analog education system to prepare people for a native analog world with native digitals on the receive end of that, that I think instinctively knows something's really wrong about this and left with this difficult dilemma. And, and I want to get at how we can go at that dilemma because I think it's a false choice. But, the, but I think many of them piled on by parents and guidance counselors and the adult world around them are told you either buckle down, get good grades, get into the right college. That's the key to success in life or you're going to be in a world of hurt. And, you know, I'm not speculating about this. I mean, this doesn't happen in a one-hour conversation sometime in high school. This starts, you know, it starts when a kid's four or five years old, and it's day in, day out, year in and year out. Buckle down. You've got to get good grades. You've got to excel in this system because that's the key to a good job. Now, the problem is that it's no longer the key to a good job. You know, and more and more people, when you look at the raw math, and I'm happy to elaborate on this, but the raw math of who actually has college working for them versus who's getting a bad deal, it's ugly. You know, it's way more people are getting a lousy deal with our college-obsessed education system than are getting a good deal. It's hard, though, for a 9-year-old or a 13-year-old or even a 17-year-old to to have the wherewithal to say, wait, I'm what they're telling me doesn't make any sense. You know, I mean, that's difficult. And I've traveled a lot and I've talked to a lot of, I mean, I've visited a ton of schools, interviewed lots of young people, and I'll ask, do you think this is a good deal or not? And, you know, very few have the wherewithal, the perspective to say, I'm getting screwed. I don't buy into this and I'm going to protest and try to change it. You know, because they say like, by the time I get anywhere in changing it, I will be, I will have aged out of this. So this is somebody else's problem. We have, in, in, you know, in this film, Most Likely to Succeed, and I can send you the link so that anybody who wants to see it can watch it for free. My favorite scene in the film, and I, I worked with a great filmmaker, Greg Whiteley. Uh, you know, I love that. It, it was so good. Multiple Emmys. Out of 90 minutes, and, and it was like 900 hours of footage turned into a 90-minute film. So we were filming a lot of places for two years. My favorite scene is at this high-powered suburban school outside of Denver where they asked the students, you know, they were trying to innovate in the math area, and the students were resisting it. And they asked the students, would you rather learn math that actually helps you be more productive later in life, or do you just want to get good grades here? And, and the students look at the camera. You can see this, their look in their face, and they're like, astounded that any adult thinks that a kid goes to school to learn. You know, it's like one kid after another says, no, of course we're not here to learn. We're just here to get good grades because you had to get good grades to get into the right college. Maybe we'll start thinking and learning in college, but if we don't get through that college wicket in a good way, we're not going to get the kind of good jobs we need. And it's like, you just like, I love it because when parents see that scene, they realize this is what we're doing to kids. We're telling them, take on whatever meaningless hoop is put in front of you, outcompete your classmates, push yourself to do well in something you see no point to, so that you have a slightly better chance of getting into a very expensive college where you'll learn very little and hope that career services can place you in a job you don't hate. Well, there you have it this legendary dialogue with the amazing Ted Dintersmith. 
And don't forget, this is the first of a two-part series. Next time, on the second portion, we're going to dive into exactly what school could be, what some of the solutions are as we look to the future. It's, I hope that you tune into that conversation and that we can begin to co-create the future of education together. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.